the moon to separate day from night, to mark seasons, days and years. And this earth central viewpoint of the entire cosmos is vindicated even in the book of Revelation when in Revelation 6 verse 13 as the as the purposes and the the events on earth come to an end and human history comes to a climax the stars fall from the sky to the earth like figs shaken from a fig tree it is the earth that is at the center of God's plan for the universe have you thought about this when Genesis we read Genesis 1 and in Genesis uh, one on the fourth day, God creates the sun, the moon and the stars. And yet there is nothing that humanity can do to the sun, good or bad. Not a thing you can do to it. You can't change it. You can't move it. You can't stop it from burning. We can't make it brighter or dimmer. We can't make it larger or smaller, neither uh, nearer or farther, hotter or cooler. Even if we did decide this morning as a human race that we wanted to destroy the sun, even if we and North Korea took all of our nukes, right, and aimed them at the sun, there's nothing we could do to it. If we amassed all our thermonuclear weapons and sent them as intergalactic rockets to explode on the surface of the sun, they would never make it. But they would be incinerated millions of miles away from their destination. Currently, NASA is presenting, is presently planning a solar probe mission that will be able to only get, only get within three and a half million miles of the surface of the sun. The sun burns on day after day without any visible reduction of its power. So bright that we can, well, you can't even look at it steadily without being blinded. The sun glorifies God by its astonishing power and brightness. And yet the sun was designed with human beings in mind, shining in the sky to give light to the earth, according to Genesis 1, verse 17. God created the moon for the same human-centered purpose, but unlike the sun, the moon gives borrowed light to the earth. The moon reflects the sun's light to the earth, just as, in a metaphorical sense, we believers will one day shine with the light of Christ in heaven. And then comes this just short statement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. He also made the stars. No big deal. Just made the stars. So many that you cannot count them. Recent advances in technology and cosmology, such as the Hubble Space Telescope that orbits the Earth, projects back the stunning images of the galaxies and the starry host, show us how immense the universe is that God has made. And that was just on day four. On day five, God filled the seas with swimming creatures and the skies flying with birds. Have you ever thought about the incalculable number and variety of species of birds and fish? Boggles the mind to the glory of God. God created whales to be the largest living creature on the earth. And then he opens his hand to feed them with over 2,600 pounds of plankton every day. There are spectacularly beautiful tropical fish sporting vivid designs that radiate with every color in the color spectrum. There are grotesque fish called brotolids. I don't even know how to pronounce this. They can exist almost five miles below the surface of the ocean. The birds display the staggering creativity of God. For some of them, like eagles, soar on thermals, hardly ever flapping their wings. And others, like hummingbirds, flap their wings as many as 80 beats per second. Peregrine falcons are the fastest creatures in nature, traveling 240 miles 
per hour in vertical dives. And it says God blessed the fish and the birds and commanded them to fill the sea and the sky. And that was only on day five. And on the sixth day, God turned his attention to the dry land and brought forth the beast of the earth, livestock, wild animals, creatures that crawl all over the earth. The complexity and the variety of the species are clear testimonies to the wisdom and goodness of God. Some of the creatures are mighty and powerful, like the elephant who can lift 600 pounds just with his trunk. Some of them are timid and tiny like rock badgers which dwell on mountain ledges and they suck moisture from the lichens growing on cliffs. It was God who created the mighty lion to roar, the otter to swim, the hippopotamus to dominate the African rivers, and the cheetah to run like the wind. And that is yet the crowning piece of his creation because then God looked at the earth and said, it is good. But then he said, I will make man in my image. And it was when he created man and woman in his image that he looked at the creation and said, Behold, it is very good. It is complete. And so God completes the account of his creation of the universe with this sweeping assessment. Behold, in other words, come up to my vantage point and look at what I'm looking at and see that it is all very good. This is a vastly important declaration because it asserts the essential goodness of God in creation. And we talked about this last week. But it's it's important to remember that the creation is good. I asked Jenny to help me think of things that show the goodness of God in creation. And we came up with a long list of things. It's a good thing to practice with your children at the dinner table. What are five things in creation that you're just glad that they exist and you could not imagine creation without them? She mentioned ladybugs. I would not have thought of ladybugs, but she said ladybugs. They're just great. And tigers. And whales. There's these big whales and God created the ocean for them to play in. I thought about bacon. (laughs) I don't even like coffee, but the smell of coffee mixed with bacon in the morning is just one of God's gifts to creation. He creates ocean waves and He creates... He creates radio waves and microwaves, right? He creates all these things for us that are good. He creates birds. He creates bees. And He created the birds and the bees. It was all His idea. Let Him who has ears to hear, hear. It's all about the goodness of God. He made pizza. He made pepperoni to go on pizza. He created mouse to eat pizza and and to enjoy pizza. He made all of those things. He created the sun and moon and stars and galaxies. All to show His goodness. And yet Greek philosophers and Eastern mystics and even some secularists in our age have denied the goodness of the physical world and especially of the human body. God declared everything He had made was good. And even more important than this, the creation showed God himself to be good. It's not just that nature is good and creation is good, but creation reveals the nature of our creator. We live in a universe that was intelligently and lovingly crafted by a God who is good and who loves what he has made, which means he is committed to what he has made. We live on a planet that is uniquely prepared for human life in particular. If you ever doubt God's love for humanity, think about this. The earth travels at precisely 66,600 miles per hour as it orbits the sun. This speed is exactly what is needed to offset the sun's gravitational pull and keep the earth a proper distance from the sun for life to thrive. 
It was the goodness of God that set the angle of tilt of the earth's axis at 23.5 degrees relative to the sun. If he had done anything different, it would have changed everything. 23.5 degrees allows for the variation of seasons in our hemispheres. But if the tilt was tilted just to 25 degrees, summer would be much hotter, winters would be much colder, resulting in devastation of the plant life on earth. Just for one and a half degree tilt. And so the speed and the position of the earth were very good for human life. God also finally tuned the earth's atmosphere unlike anything in any other solar system. Far above our heads today, ozone blocks the potentially cancer-causing radiation from the sun. The atmosphere shields us from meteors burning up as much as 70,000 tons of space debris every year. It contains 70% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, just perfect for life. Without oxygen, all animate life would be unable to survive. But if the amount were increased to 25%, fires would break out instantly all over the earth. And it would be nearly impossible to put them out. The nitrogen dilutes oxygen but provides essential fertilizer for plant life. And amazingly, during electrical storms all over the earth, I didn't, I didn't know this before I preached this sermon, learning this, lightning bolts combine nitrogen and oxygen into compounds vital for plant life and these compounds are then carried into the soil by the rain. And so the atmosphere is very good for life. I think we start to get a glimpse of what it means in Psalm 19.4 when it says the heavens declare the glory of God. And yet the heavens are not the crowning act of His creation. It is man and woman. It is those created in His image. And so now we have to ask two important questions. Number one, what does it mean that humans are made in the image of God? And second question, If we are made in the image of God, what is our purpose here on the earth? If God made us and said, this is the crowning part of my creation. What's the big deal? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Number two. What is our purpose here on the earth? Let's deal with the first question first. What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? For each of these two questions, I'm going to give three answers. If you're taking notes and you like structure, what does it mean first that we are created in the image of God? You see, not only does all creation display the power of God, the creator, but like David said in Psalm 139, we should marvel that God personally wove us together in our mother's womb and sustains us every moment of our lives. We should understand that In God, we live and move and have our being, as Paul told the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. We should know what Daniel said in Daniel 5 when he said that God holds in his hand our lives and all of our ways. This should move us to awestruck intimacy with God that displays, that David displays in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And so we're told here in Genesis chapter 1 that both Adam and Eve were created In the image of God. Man here represents both men and women. Which had huge implications for the ancient world. I want you to think about the Israelites reading this. Surrounded by cultures who often mistreated women as second class humans. We're told here that both men and women are called to play a role in God's creation. 
And so the image of God has to do with the dignity of man to be next to God in the order of creation. And although God commits himself to the whole of his creation for its good order and preservation, humanity is the special focus of his care. And so creation is there for our benefit. So let's answer these questions. First, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? The first answer to that is that we are a unique reflection of God. We are different from all other animals, all other species. To be created in the image of God means first that we are a unique reflection of God. The uniqueness of the human race lies not in our having developed more or survived better. But in being created in the image of God. There was an interesting question that was asked. I've seen people ask it on the streets just to random people. The question was asked. I want you to imagine that you're on a ship. And on the ship, uh, a man that you do not know, a stranger to you falls overboard. And he's drowning. And then you look over and your, your, your puppy, your own pet, also falls overboard. And is drowning. And you can only save one of them. Who would you save? Would you save the puppy? Or would you save the man? Some of you are like, but I love my puppy. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. But if we truly understand the value of being made in the image of God, I believe the Christian has to say, I save the man, even if I lose the dog. Because man is an image bearer. He's made in the image of God. We are crafted as a reflection of God. Now, I know that there are obvious extreme differences between us and God that separate us from God. There are many ways in which we are not like God. But there is something about who we are that is different from everything else in all of creation that is a reflection of our Creator. When someone says about a boy, people, people did this. They did this when our baby, when John was born. They did it, we have a baby up here, Lydia. When my daughter was born, people automatically ask the question, who do they look like? Do they look like daddy or do they look like mama? Thankfully, they look more like mama, right? That's a good thing. But they bear our image, right? And they reflect us. Some people will say he's the spitting image of his father. There's some sense in which you look at a man or a woman, you look at any of us in this room and you say he or she is a reflection of God. I don't normally do this, but turn to your neighbor and just look at them and tell them you are a reflection of God. You're looking at an image bearer. Every one of us are made in the image of God in a way that nothing else in creation can say. So that's the first answer to the question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? We are a unique reflection of God. The second answer to that question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means we are utterly reliant upon God. We are utterly re reliant upon God. As creatures of God, we are totally dependent upon Him for everything. We're not only dependent on God for food, but for every moment of our existence. We draw our next breath. Our hearts beat the next beat. We are conscious of the next moment of our existence only because God goes on sustaining the very substance of creation. 
There are no laws in nature that are naturally self-sustaining. If God were to withdraw for a split second His powerful Word, the universe would cease to exist in that same split second. Jesus was not speaking mere metaphor when He said, man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Because if God were to retract His Word, you and I would cease to live. And so Christ is the creative word of God. We're told in Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. And in him all things hold together. We are utterly reliant upon God. Not just for your food today at lunch. You are dependent upon him for your very existence. The third answer to this question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that we are ultimately responsible to God. We are a unique reflection of God. We are utterly reliant upon God. Third, we are ultimately responsible to God. Responsibility means being answerable to God for what we do. The image of God in mankind means that we are uniquely answerable to God for every single thing that we do. Don't miss this. To be made in the image of God means that we are ultimately responsible to God. And this is huge in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we need to see this. You see, our, our culture today likes to think of ourselves in charge. We are the masters of our own fate. We set our pace. We make our own rules. We chart our own course. But the biblical doctrine of creation goes totally against that kind of thinking. Because the reality is that everything we have, we have been given from God. Everything we have, including our breath, every one of us is responsible to God for how we use everything He has given to us. The mantra in our day, the motto of our day, is that we are accountable to no one. At most, you're accountable to yourself. And so we say things like this, just be true to yourself. Not true. Not true. And so to every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, hear me. You are accountable to God. Just think about this for a minute. The God who created everything we mentioned. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the mountains, the ocean. The God who has that kind of power is the God that we will answer to. And it's amazing when you think about it that we as humans have the audacity to rebel against that God. You are responsible to God in everything that you do and say. This is so against the grain, even against common psychology in our day that that attributes everything that we do. Well, you're a factor of this or this. And well, you couldn't help it because you were born this way or you do this. The reality is that every single one of us is responsible for everything we say and do. Ultimately, we are responsible to God for these things. And so now we see one of the mysteries of creation from the very beginning of creation, something called compatibilism, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And they are both here. And we at Three Rivers believe both. Yes, we're reformed in our theology. We believe God's sovereign over all things, but we still believe that we are responsible. Right? You go to Genesis chapter 2 and man is given commands. And in Genesis 3, that man has a choice. He has some sense of freedom by which he either chooses to obey that command or disobey that command. 
So man is responsible for his choices. And we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working together in some mysterious way. God is in control of every single detail here. And at the same time, we are making choices. We see the shift in responsibility in Genesis 3. We're not at the fall yet, but we're getting there. And we see man responsing it, shifting responsibility. As soon as the man sins, what does he do? What does Adam do? He shifts the responsibility, shifts the blame. And he doesn't... When, when God says, Adam, what have you done? What does he say? She did it. Eve, what have you done? What does she say? Serpent did it. You see, it's deeper than just blaming one another and shifting responsibility. Because I want you to hear what Adam says in Genesis 3, verse 12. He doesn't just say she did it. He actually blames God. He says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. God, you're the one who put her here. It's your fault. Man is shifting responsibility to God for his own sin. And the biblical truth that we must see in the very beginning of Scripture is that you and I are responsible. Animals are not responsible to God in the same way that we are. College students, listen to me. You are accountable to the God of the universe for every single decision you're making right now. If you're single in here, you're, you're, you're accountable. Every husband, every wife, every mom, every dad, every grandmom, every granddad. Your decisions are not small. They are big and they are accountable. You are accountable to the God of the universe. This is humbling. It's a reflection of God. Relying on God for our makeup and being responsible to God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. But there's more than that. Being created in the image of God, secondly, means that we have also been created for the purpose of God. We're created in the image of God, but we're also created for the purpose of God. And there's three ways that we're created in the purpose of God. You see, humans have spiritual life. We're different from animals. We have ethical and moral sensitivities. We have a conscience that our dogs do not have. When they chew up their toys and they chew up your couch, they do not feel sorry for it. We have the capacity to represent God. The significance of this word image, that being made in the image of God, is connected to God's divine purpose for our life. One of the theologians, a guy named Von Rad, made this analogy. He said, just as kings set up statues of themselves throughout the border of their land to show their sovereign domain, so God established His representatives on the earth to show His dominion. And so what does it mean? What is our purpose? We've been created in the image of God. We've been created for the purpose of God. What is God's purpose for us according to Genesis chapter 1? The first purpose is to enjoy a relationship with God. To enjoy a relationship with God. If you look at verse 28, it says that after God had made them male and female in His image, God blessed them. He blessed them. David Platt, president of the IMB, asked his three-year-old son, Caleb. Said, Caleb, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Here's what a three-year-old said. It means that God loves us. David Platt said, buddy, I'm going to write that one down. Right? To be created in the image of God means that God loves us. 
That's so true. We were created with the capacity to know God, to relate to God in a way that nothing else in creation can. Created to enjoy and delight in God. This is the first statement of the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is what you were created for. We were made for a relationship with God. Adam and Eve were made to relate to God in a way that the animals in the creative order were not. Our first purpose is to know God, to have a relationship with Him. The second purpose is to rule over all creation. First purpose, to enjoy a relationship with God. Second purpose, to rule over all creation. Look at verse 28 of Genesis 1. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In order for us to get a picture of this, I want you to hold your place in Genesis 1 quickly and turn to Psalm 8. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 8 because I think we see the glory of God displayed in the creation of man and what it actually means to have dominion. Look at Psalm 8. came across this text and said, man, I've got to point this out. This is rich. Psalm 8. I want you to notice in Psalm 8 that, that the first verse and the last verse are the same. It begins and ends with this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All right, so that's where we begin with the majesty of God. And now here's what I want you to see. Let's read verse 2. He says something really strange here. Out of the mouth, right, the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. All right, so just get this picture. We don't even really know what this means yet, but somehow God is using the mouths of babies and infants, someone that we would consider to be weak, and he uses their mouths to establish what? Strength. So in some way, God establishes his strength through the weakness of babies. Verse 3. See if we can figure out what this means. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. All right, what is his fingers done? Verse 3, his fingers made the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So he's the strength of God, even in his fingers, makes the stars and the moon. Verse 4, he asks this question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? There's something different here. In verse 4, we're told that God is mindful of man. He's paying attention to man. He sets his thoughts on man. He cares for man. Verse 5. Yet. Alright, so there's a comparison here. Yet. So, so you have the greatness of creation, the sun, moon, and stars, and then the lowliness of man. Who is man that you would be mindful of him? And yet, verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. 
a little lower than the angels. What kind of position is that? God has elevated man to that position, just a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. And now here's a parallel to that whole baby talk in verse 2, verse 6. You have given him dominion. So you have the weakness of babies and the weakness of men. And to the weakness of men, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So if we had two big points here, God is, God is establishing strength and, and, and conquering the enemy through the weakness of babies. And God is ruling the world through the weakness of man. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We have been designed to rule over all creation, to take dominion. This is why we preach domain engagement, to engage your domain, to rule and subdue the earth. You've been created in the image of God. You have been made more than made for more than just having a job and, and taking a salary. You've been made to take dominion. And this is this is not just to plant a farm and to have crops. This is this is to establish the glory of God over the the world so that the nations would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And God does this through the weakness of men. This is why Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is why Paul says that God chose the foolish things of the world. To shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. It's in the weakness of man that God rules and has dominion over the earth. That's the second answer. What's the purpose of man? It is to enjoy a relationship with God. It is to rule over all creation. And then there's this third purpose for us. Our third purpose is to reproduce God's glory to the ends of the earth. Our purpose. God created us for the purpose to reproduce God's glory to the ends of the earth. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you look at verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and all the animals of the earth. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. For them it meant have lots of babies and fill the earth. Because as you fill the earth, the image of God begins to spread. They were never meant to stay in Eden. Hear that? Adam and Eve were never meant to stay in the Garden of Eden forever. They were meant to multiply the image of God and to fill the earth And the way you fill the earth with the glory of God is you multiply the image of God. And by multiplying the image of God, it is the image bearers, people. You have children, you multiply the knowledge of the Lord to all ends of the earth. Did they do that? No, because in Genesis chapter 11, we see them building a tower. The Tower of Babel. And what are they doing? They're not making a name for God. They built a large tower. They're all gathered together. Instead of being scattered 
They're gathered together and they're, they're building a tower to make a great name for themselves. We see that reversed at Pentecost, by the way. When the Holy Spirit comes and all the nations come to Jerusalem. And now those languages that were confused at Babel are now able to be understood. The gospel's understood and they go. God is reversing the curse. So how do we do this? I want to read this verse and, and, and listen, this is, a, this is a verse that you've heard and that you know. But I want to ask a question that I've never thought about before. And I think this is how we apply this for ourselves. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Hear these words and I want to ask you a question. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to His purpose. Now hear verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Here's my question, Three Rivers. If we are already made in the image of God, why do we need to be conformed to the image of Christ? If we were already created in the image of God in Genesis 1, why does Romans 8 tell us that we need to be conformed to the image of Christ? More importantly, how are we conformed back to the image of God? So here's, here's where... We get the big story of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God makes man in His image. And in Genesis 3, we see the fall. And Adam and Eve both rebel and the image of God is broken. It's marred. It's shattered. And something in all of creation is, is broken and messed up. And the image of God has been fallen. It's broken. Marred. And so what God is doing through the work of redemption is He is restoring the image of God. And so we need to be restored back to the image of Christ. You see, this is the point of the sermon when we realize that being made in the image of God is not primarily about us, but about Jesus Christ. You see, today I could tell you that you need to conform yourselves more to the image of Christ. Go be better. Go read your Bible more. Go do more. Go study more. Go pray more. Go work more. Go repent more. And eventually you'll get conformed to the image of Christ. But Romans 8 doesn't say that. Romans 8 doesn't say that you conform yourselves to the image of Christ. Romans 8 says that God predestined that you would be conformed and that that conforming would be a work of God on your behalf, not you and your effort trying to earn it, trying to carve it out and make yourself look more like Jesus. That is God's work. See, the good news of the gospel and where the story of the Bible is headed is that there was one other man who bore the image of God, except he was not only he not only shared the image of God, he also shared the essence of God. Because John 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God. But we're told more than that about 
Christ because Christ was not part of his creation, but he was the creator himself. John 1 verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of the father's nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God gave the first man, Adam, dominion over the earth. And the father told Christ, the son, I will make the earth your footstool. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God this morning? What does God look like? If you want to know what God looks like, you only have to look to Christ this morning. Colossians 1 verse 15 through 17. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. You see, all of the points we've made about being made in the image of God and the purpose of God, all of it has been fulfilled in Christ. Just like us, Christ was a unique reflection of God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Just like us, Christ was utterly reliant upon God. John 5, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And we are not the only ones ultimately responsible to God. Because Jesus said in John 8 verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. You see, Jesus was not only the image of God, but He fulfilled the purpose of God. He enjoyed a relationship with God. Christ rules over all creation. And He will reproduce His glory to the ends of the earth. How will He do this? Three rivers, He will do it by reversing the curse of the fall and restoring what was broken in creation by entering into His creation. The writer of the story now jumps into history because it is his story. Jesus does not begin when the beginning began. He began the beginning. He doesn't start when start gets started because he started start. He is the igniter. He turns the ignition on on history. He is at the beginning of all things. He's first and last. He's Alpha and Omega. He's A to Z. He's before the alphabet. He's all over the alphabet. He created the alphabet. He is every part of the alphabet. He is in all things. He is the author of history and he has entered into his story in John 1.14. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. But he did not come as he should have. He did not come as a king, but as a humble baby. He did not come with a parade, but he dropped in incognito behind enemy lines, landing in a manger in Bethlehem to fulfill the ultimate purpose of bearing our sin. This is why Philippians 2 is so crucial. That Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on the cross. I'm serious. At 6.30 this morning, I woke up with this thought. I thought, Jesus, how can I apply this and draw this and, and connect the image of God to you? And I had this thought as soon as I woke up this morning. I had to run to my laptop. Jesus was born in the likeness of men so that we could be restored back to the likeness of God. God becomes man so that man can bear the image of God once again. And this is why Philippians 3 verse 21 is so sweet. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The same power that God created the universe is the power that He will use one day to glorify our bodies. Because here's the truth, y'all. I look at myself and I'm fallen. I look in the mirror and things aren't working right. I look in the mirror and wonder, where did my hair go? We got people that we're praying for in our church who, who are in surgery. I think of Phil, and I pray for Phil, and I think of Phil, and I think, man, God's going to glorify our bodies one day. I'm sore from playing basketball because my body doesn't work the way it used to. But it's more than just my physical body that's failing. It's my spiritual body, right? Isn't it true? Have we not all done things this week that we regret? We've all thought things that we wish we hadn't thought. We said things to our spouse that we immediately wish we could have taken back. We treated our children in ways we shouldn't have. We've said things to our neighbors. We haven't loved our neighbors as we love ourselves we've all sinned we've all fallen short of the glory of God and what we need more than anything today is not reformation but resurrection we need we need transformation of the body I need my my sinful body to be taken away and to be restored back to something new and glorious and Jesus by the power of his creation is able to make me new so that if I'm in Christ all things are made new I'm a new creature and what has Jesus told us to do Jesus told us in Matthew 28, go and be fruitful and multiply. You don't just have to have babies to multiply. Now the commission is to multiply disciples. Because I have all authority in heaven and earth. So go, go, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Fill the earth with the knowledge of my glory. This is how we obey Genesis 1 is we obey Matthew 28. If you want to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God, we make disciples of all nations. But the truth is Jesus has not left us alone. In the work of creation, what did God do? He saw Adam sitting there in the garden all by himself and said, this is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So he created a helper. He created woman and gave Adam exactly what he needed to accomplish the mission. To take dominion over the earth and to subdue it and to be fruitful and multiply. And now Jesus is looking at us today and the great task that we have to be fruitful and to multiply his glory to the nations. And we cannot do it alone. And Jesus says, it is not good for y'all to be alone I will be with you always to the end of the age because I will send you another helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will come alongside of you and help you fulfill the mission. And so as the gospel is proclaimed and, and Jesus' glory is displayed and as people become uh, believers and believe the gospel, we keep our eyes and our hope fixed on Jesus today. If you're struggling today with sin, do not try to carve yourself out and, and try to create something new. Look at Jesus and trust in Him and believe the gospel that He is making you new and He's conforming you into you, His image. If you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with temptation, don't look inward at yourself today. Look at the cross. Look at Christ. Look at what He's accomplished for you. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians 15. 
49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also will bear the image of the man of heaven. Isn't that good? We were created originally in the image of Adam. We bear Adam's sin. We're created out of the dust. And now God's making us new, not after the man of dust, but after the man of heaven. Hear these words from 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Here's the truth. We become more like Jesus the more we look at Jesus. You want to look like Jesus today? Look at Jesus. Look at Him this morning. Be transformed by His power as you are conformed more and more into His image. He is restoring what was broken. And one day, He will conform us fully to His image. We will look exactly like Christ. We will be brought into glory. For those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He will glorify. And to that, we sing with the psalmist in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, the only response now is worship. I want to sing. My heart wants to sing. My heart looks around at at people who are image bearers, and yet I see that we're all broken. And what we need more than anything today is for you to conform us into the image of your Son. We yield ourselves to you. We look forward to the end of the story when you are going to make all things new. You are conforming us even now into the image of your Son. So, Father sanctify us in your truth for your word is truth use the power of your word to transform us and to make us look more like jesus to fix what was broken in the fall conform us today into the image of christ and lead us into worship to worship you as the maker of heaven and earth the creator of all things the one in whom all things hold together the one who upholds the universe by the word of your power That is who we sing to. We love you and we worship you. Elevate our hearts to see Christ and to worship and treasure him above all things today. In Jesus name. Amen.